Hello, welcome again to Sport Unlock with you twice in a week and coming to you from a central London hotel where Premier League owners and chief executives are preparing to meet. I'm Rob Harris from Sky News alongside me, Martin Ziegler from The Times and Tarek Panja from The New York Times here in person getting a bit of an insight into the world of the Premier League Chiefs. Yeah, good to be with you guys. Very good. Um, just to, obviously we're saying the uh, Manchester City is the subject which is on everybody's minds following the the rule breaches that we've, uh, we've we've heard about, the alleged rule breaches and the charges, 115 charges brought. It's on everybody's mind, but nobody's talking about it, Tariq. No, we've been coming to these meetings for a number of years now, these quarterly Premier League board meetings. I must say the atmosphere here today is a bit different to those. It was such a seismic event on Monday, those 115 charges against Man City. And you can kind of sense that a little bit from, from the other team representatives here. And it did seem that Ferran Soriano, the Manchester City Chief Executive, walked in after virtually everyone else was already in the room there. They certainly wouldn't have gone unnoticed because, of course, a lot of these are Premier League clubs who do want to see Manchester City punished and I suppose during the week we've sort of got a sense more of what options could be on the table and also just how long this case could go on for. Yeah so I mean initially a lot of the clubs were saying that they you know they, they would like to see a swift outcome I'm saying this privately they want to see a swift outcome for ideally before the end of the season or the start of next season but I think it soon swiftly became clear that that wasn't never going to happen. In fact, Nick DeMarco, KC, the, the, the barrister, said he thinks it could be between two and four years. And he sort of based that on. He, he did the FFP cases for Derby County and Sheffield Wednesday. They were two charges, and it took one and a half years from charge to the end of the process. These are 115 charges, and they're a lot more complicated, complex. Yeah, I mean, interesting to hear Nick DeMarco saying two to four years. I wonder if Manchester City wants this to drag out for that long because there will have to be a verdict in the end that's potentially two to four years using those estimates of this reputation as being cheats and the, the, the damage that that has on Manchester City's reputation and also on their sponsors, which are pretty significant companies in in the UAE that are under scrutiny, Etihad and Etisalat, for example, both listed on the stock exchange over there. Yeah, we've not heard any criticism from those companies. Obviously, they are linked to the Abu Dhabi state. Now, obviously, been a lot of discussion around the case, some perhaps defending City a bit more from their fans from other places. One of the line of arguments has been, well, actually, these rules are wrong anyway. They should never have been in place to start with. That's been something articulated. But cast your mind back. The takeover happened in 2008 by Abu Dhabi. 2011 was the first implementation of FFP. Quite a long period to legitimately, potentially, in public, oppose FFP on point of principles, but n never happened. So what do we make of this discussion point? Well, actually, they're right to try and bend the rules because they, sh they were sort of pulling up the drawbridge. Well, I don't think you have a right to bend the rules, are you? You can disagree with the rules and you can campaign for them to be changed. And, but, um, and that's one thing. I think bending the rules or, um, or breaking them is another thing entirely. And Harry, if one thing that crossed my mind today, and in fact I'm writing on it, is 
around what happens with the Manchester City directors, who the people who are in charge this time. So I'm talking Khaldun Al Mubarak, the chairman, his his special advisor in the executive authority of Abu Dhabi, Simon Pearce, also a long-serving Manchester City board member. If we're talking, if these alleged 50-plus breaches of providing financial information accurately are established, can they stay in their positions? It's, it's hard to see them staying in their positions, uh, as if you put it that way. But I think even more significantly, um, I can't see some of these people, whether they're board members or, or the club executives who've been there, working in football again, if they've been found to have been um, found guilty of, of this. Can you imagine, you know, you mentioned Ferran Soriano, the last fellow in there. Man City at the moment are, are innocent. Of course, Manchester City have denied the allegations repeatedly and they say they welcome the review to, for an independent commission to impartially consider the comprehensive body of what they call irrefutable evidence that exists to support their position. As we sit outside the room where the Premier League chiefs are meeting from all the clubs, one big issue that was dominating for them, what, two years ago was the Super League. Six of them in that room tried to go off and join the breakaway, including Manchester City, who've been so highly talked about this week. They have had to disavow that Super League, but Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus haven't given up on it. Under the guise of A22, they've been keeping this thing bubbling on. It's resurfaced in the last year, and we have yet another plan that they've put out we talked through the plan, but also perhaps a false sense of momentum behind this. Just because you release a plan doesn't mean it has a prospect of success. Well, it's a kind of a plan, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I think slightly sort of overblown. I mean, when I saw the press release that came through and the sort of briefings about it, I was, I was slightly underwhelmed. But also, I thought what stood out for me is that they made it clear in their sort of presentation that the whole thing, the whole issue here is the Premier League and that the fact that the clubs and Premier League are, are put, pulling away from the rest of Europe. Um, so they put loads of data around revenues, wages being spent comparatively, um, media rights and every everything. You know, there's a big gap between the Premier League and the rest of Europe and the idea is that what they're saying is going to be the best competition in the world is going to be uh, is is going to fix this somehow. But um, I suppose the big, the only sort of big change from the original plan was that instead of twenty clubs, they're talking about sixty to eighty and having a minimum of fourteen matches each. But we don't know how or when or what format. So low on detail, Rob. No, of course, the original Super League plan had 15 permanent members in the 20-team competition. They've gone away from that, but they've had all this time to form a plan, and it's still just listed as 10 points of principle, talking about 60 to 80 teams on a multi-divisional competition. But you think when you're needing to persuade football to potentially back this, you might need a sort of formal structure that's intense detail and very similar to the original plan where it was seen that women's football was a side note. Again, it's just a very low point, point eight, that they should promote and develop the women's game by putting it centre stage, side by side with men's competitions. But 
again, very clear that this is a male-dominated planet, an era of growth in women's football, and a, an era when, of course, UEFA actually will take financial hit off and on running women's competitions as well as youth competitions as well. So very little substance and, crucially, no detail about who's financing it and who actually backs it. No, and actually... You know, you know, in the past when there'd been a sort of big Super League announcement, it would have been the sort of talk of you know, club executives anyway. I think most of them sort of just brushed it off as being sort of fairly meaningless. So I think there's needs to... I think that the key is going to be the European Court of Justice decision, which we're expecting in the middle of March. Um, we've already had the, the, the Attorney General's um, opinion there and... He's basically gone gone in favour of UEFA, so it doesn't seem like this is the sort of final attempt to try and drum something up before the ECJ decision. Because I think if that goes against the Super League and A22, then it's it it really is curtains. And what isn't clear from this bullet point list is why this would be more beneficial to football and the clubs than the existing UEFA competitions, the Champions League expanding from 2024 so they get more games, the European Club Association has more of a say in how football is run. Perhaps their best hope might be to try and pick off those lower mid-ranked clubs who maybe feel squeezed out in the discussions by the elite. Yeah, but there's one big problem with that, Rob, in that this is all about Real Madrid and Barcelona and Juventus getting a huge amount more money and and getting a huge amount more money than other you know medium sized clubs that's that's the whole basis for the super league so you can't do that and somehow get bring along medium sized clubs with you to to any great extent in my opinion without the english clubs a resistant english media as well very little support for it you'd say in the media and english language can dominate the world agenda that it does derail these plans they did drop it into certain newspapers like Develt, didn't they, across Europe, maybe hoping for a softer landing? Yeah, I can't see how English clubs can actually join a Super League. I think the Premier League have brought in too many new rules. It sounds like the independent football regulators are going to have similar blocks in place. I mean, the A22 suggesting, oh, that, you know, that could be against the law, but it's not European law in the UK anymore. So I think... I think it's basically, it's, it's as far as English clubs are, are concerned, it's a non-starter. And if there's no Premier League clubs in the Super League, that's probably a non-starter too. Cristiano, the last fellow in there, Man City at the moment, are, are innocent. But if, if Manchester City is, is guilty, can you imagine that the chief executive who's, who's been in place for so long um, being there the day after? It's very hard to see these people working in football after they've, if they've been found guilty. And just as we speak, the Crystal Palace chairman, Steve Parrish, walking by, going for a sort of slight break. Yeah, it gave us a, a slightly dismissive wave of the hand as he walked past. Um, but it's a, so this will be an interesting test, Rob, for um, the independent football regulator. I mean, how would the regulator deal with, deal with uh, this situation if, if, you, if you had a situation where a club's directors... Um, had overseen sort of breaches of financial rules. Well, it's interesting to see what detail actually comes from the football regulation plans, how much they'd leave that to the Premier League, indeed the FA in that regard. And since recording on Monday, we had been expecting this week, we'd now know all the details of how English football would have plans for a government 
appointed football regulatory body were a bit confused on Monday why it had been delayed. Uh, the word was actually from Downing Street that it was now busy on Wednesday. What we didn't realise is the exact time that they were due to stand up in Parliament to deliver the speech is actually in the end when Ukrainian President Zelensky ended up addressing Parliament at Westminster Hall. So the football regulator plan was bumped off and delayed for a couple of weeks by a first visit to the UK since the war started by uh, President Zelensky. So probably bigger matters. Although, of course, very interlinked a year since the war started. It led to Abramovich being forced to sell Chelsea and uh, so much else. Though something actually else interlinked this week is uh, the UAE granting banking license to a Russian bank. Shows how, how everything is, is, is connected. But you mentioned Zelensky there in, in, in Parliament knocking the um, independent football regulator announcement, pushing that back. But Martin, Zelensky's going to make a... Well, by the time the listeners will, will have heard this podcast, Zelensky will have made another address linked to sports and, and the Olympics. There's a key meeting taking place um, in London. There'll be some people in person, others over video conference linked to um, Russia's potential participation in the Paris Olympics. Yeah, this has been convened by the British government. Um, it's a, quite a sort of difficult position that the IOC is increasingly finding itself. It's been pushing quite hard on the, to, the fact it wants to overturn its, there's a U-turn on its position and allow Russians to compete as neutrals. But if you've got Zelensky speaking out, quite a few National Olympic committees now, a lot of the Scandinavians. Um, we've, um, and interestingly, one of the things that the uh, IOC have been pointing to is the, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Cultural Rights, Alex Santhaki. Uh, she's been saying uh, that basically supporting their position, say it's discrimination to ban ban Russians from competing as, as neutrals. And, and on Twitter, she sort of caused a bit of a storm because when she was questioned about this, she, she replied, um, the USA waged an illegal war in 2003, and I don't remember people trying to ban Michael Phelps from swimming. So um, I think it's a slightly strange, some strange position for the, the UN Special Rapporteur to take. Well, she's uh, looking at that tweet... Um by the way, you pronounced her name really well. That let me just give you a hat tip for your Greek pronunciation there. No, she she's pretty on that tweet you mentioned. Um, the word illegal is in bold as well. So she's kind of doesn't seem to be very neutral, I suppose, in in how she's presenting this this opinion. Um, so so yeah, this is the figure that the IOC has been reliant upon, and it, again it screams of the IOC looking to say, well, it's not us. It's not our idea. It's not me. Look, it's the UN saying this. And we have a letter that was sent by the IOC president, Thomas Bach, to the president of the National Olympic Committee of Ukraine. And in it, he wrote that threatening a boycott of the Olympic Games, which, as you inform me, the NOC of Ukraine is currently considering, goes against the fundamentals of the Olympic movement and the principles we stand for. In this respect, the NOC of Ukraine certainly does not enjoy the support or solidarity of the vast majority of stakeholders of the Olympic movement. And as history has shown, previous boycotts did not achieve their political ends and only served to punish the athletes of the boycotting NOCs. It's a pretty strong stance against a country that's fighting for its territory, isn't it, at the moment? 
Yeah, and then people point out, well, hang on a minute, the IOC boycotted South Africa when it had apartheid. Um, and you could, you could argue there that there were plenty of innocent athletes who were denied. Um, the IOC's response to that is, oh, well, that, that's, that was because the UN, United Nations, had taken a decision on South Africa, so therefore it could follow suit, which... Can you, is that is that in a sort of acceptable position? Do you think? I don't know. You know, I think the the world has has changed as well in in that time since since those days. The idea that um, what Russia is is doing um, must be sort of kept away from the sports field and politics and sports don't mix in this context. It's very hard, particularly when it comes to Russia, because Putin, as he's shown in recent history has used events like the Olympics to to further his own ends and to promote his own interests. The IOC, uh, again, is it being willfully ignorant, if you would, if, if it thinks that, nope, this thing should be completely separate. Because you know, history has shown, recent history, that Russia is using the Olympics and these sporting events for promoting its its political positions yeah in fact uk sports chairwoman kath granger who herself a former olympic rower she uh, she was speaking this week and she said um it, it's uh, it feels very uncomfortable that a nation at war could still be celebrating success on a global stage uh, and Although many people say politics shouldn't be in sport, it feels that when wars are happening, you can't pretend sport is immune to that. Russian athletes will often feel very proud of Russia, and we know sport is used as a showcase of force. And that's from Kath Granger. Yeah, she was speaking on the Anything But Footy podcast. And this meeting that's been taking place on Friday involving so many different sports ministers, they're not yet threatening a boycott as we've heard, but they aren't basically doing so because there is an or else option that is going to have to emerge as they keep on urging the ISC to reconsider their options. And the ISC has obviously been defending its position, unlike another global governing body, FIFA, as the row rumbles on over them taking the Visit Saudi sponsorship for the Women's World Cup. We've been hearing from the US women's team this week, and they're certainly, certainly concerned about this, aren't they? Yeah, this comes after the criticism from Australia and New Zealand where the World Cup's going to be hosted. Uh, we've had um, Alex Morgan describing the sponsorship, which still hasn't been announced, by the way, as bizarre. I think, what's the quote? I think she says, I think it's bizarre that FIFA has looked to have a visit Saudi sponsorship for the Women's World Cup when I would not even be supported and accepted in that country. So I don't understand it. Pretty much everyone has spoken out against that because morally it just doesn't make sense. Um, I think that what Saudi Arabia can do, she said, is put efforts into their women's team uh, that was just formed only a couple of years ago and doesn't even have a current ranking within the FIFA ranking system because of the few games that they've played. So that'd be my advice to them, she said, and I really hope that FIFA does the right thing. Uh, is that is that really fair? Should, look, you know, on the, on the other end, Saudi have said, Martin, that they're making strides towards greater equality in their society. 
um, and and they have a women's team. That's what they would say anyway. But you could see how this would be jarring as well, given what someone like Alex Morgan said, a big football personality in, in women's football. No, absolutely. Um, and am I right in thinking that Visit Saudi also sponsored the Qatar World Cup? That was never formally announced. Yeah, this was really, really, really odd. Normally, um, FIFA trumpets a lot of their commercial partners, and that's part of sponsorship as well, isn't it? You, you pay your money hoping there's this grand announcement. That's how, I guess, commercial sponsorship deals work. You, you, you sign a sponsorship deal, you know, um, to be noticed. This one was almost done quietly, and the only visibility of that was when the game started. You see the Visit Saudi hoardings. And also, it turns out there was a, another sponsorship that was announced just as the World Cup was starting. And perhaps if we'd been paying close attention to some of those backdrops, particularly of European teams, we might have spotted that the Bettino name was there. FIFA doing its first gambling sponsorship of a World Cup, it's believed. But unlike many things that are announced by FIFA, lesser announcements. I can't find this anywhere on the FIFA website. Why would they want to not trumpet a betting sponsorship? As it would show, you know, we're raising revenue. Well, I, I suppose a lots of gambling sponsorships are controversial. I know, I know, like sport is completely in hock to them, but I, particularly sensitive, I guess, in a Muslim country, um, having a betting sponsorship there because gambling is not allowed in in Muslim countries. So maybe that's the explanation. Perhaps, but there's also the fact that football also deals with the corrosive effects of match fixing and things like that are tied to tied to the betting industry problematic gambling um is is a, is a serious problem around the world the idea that fifa which is essentially you know supposed to be a force for good would be tied to to to, to gambling might, might be an issue martin am i right in thinking that the football association in england did have a betting partner and then ended ended that saying it wouldn't no longer have um, a betting partner moving forward. I can't remember the, the case. Yeah, I think it was uh, a sort of a, a, one of the, the, the high street betting companies. Um, and they, they terminated the contract two years early because they, uh, they accepted it. It sort of didn't stand, uh, didn't look good uh, enforcing um, a ban on betting yourself. Um, footballers aren't allowed to bet on any football at all. And yet you have a gambling partner and quite rightly, they got rid of it. So for FIFA to have this, again, is a, is a slightly strange one. And there was a quote, I don't know where it actually came from. It only seems to be on some very specialist sports business sites from a FIFA head of partnership development, Louis Rodriguez, who talked about on the eve of the FIFA World Cup, this is in November, this is an exciting announcement as we enter a new industry. I look at the FIFA World Cup Twitter feed and they talk about other sponsors like Hyundai and Visa and Hisensei. They've never mentioned Bettino. This is further sort of perhaps lack of full openness and it all just come back to them not talking about and not responding to questions about the Visit Saudi sponsorship. Just ignoring it completely. Infantino is certainly all around. He was in Paris this week at a meeting of CAF members. Is at the Club World Cup in Morocco, but completely overlooking this. Just to very quickly go on, st sticking with Saudi. So it sounds like uh, Gary Cook has taken over as the new chief executive of the Saudi Premier League there, and he's bringing in 
Paul Stretford, the agent as a consultant. Gary Cook being the former chief executive of Manchester City, tying things up to how we started the pod since he's worked at UFC as well. And Paul Stretford, the agent to Wayne Rooney. Yeah, quite a topical week uh, to announce Gary Cook as the uh, new head of Saudi Arabian football. He then moved to UFC, I think. Um, and I famously remember Gary Cook for trying to sign Kaka. And then the quote I remember was AC Milan bottled it um, <laughs> in those early, uh, early Manchester City days. But Saudi Arabia are, I understand, um, offering big money to football executives, um, huge amounts of money going into the football industry. And I think Gary Cook might not be the last big name capture from, from say, European football or, or, or even American executives, Saudi Arabia obviously spent lots luring people to run their, their live golf tournament. And we're, I think we're going to see similar with football. Do you think it's going to be the sort of type of player drift that we saw with people going to China? Thinking like Oscar, the Brazilian, when he went to China. Do you think it's going to be, are we going to start seeing that to Saudi, just going for the big bucks? Lots of executives heading there, perhaps. Maybe even journalists as well. Moving on to another ongoing issue, it's the Yorkshire County Cricket Racism case in England, and we are due to have public hearings into this at the start of March. Several participants have withdrawn. There have been some admissions of guilt as well. Yeah, this whole process is, is, is sort of becoming a bit shambolic because although Yorkshire have admitted some of the charges, lots of the people who were going to take part in the ECB inquiry, uh, people like Tim Bresnan, for example, um, have pulled out. And I think that's, does that raise questions over the sort of the validity of, this, of, the, of the inquiry when it takes place? Well, obviously, they won't be able to be put on the spot and actually questioned themselves, but we are expecting some of this evidence to emerge. Obviously, very significant in terms of trying to bring clarity to what exactly happened at Yorkshire over many years. There's a very good piece by Mike Atherton, my colleague in the Times this week, in which he, he says the, the the process has been a terrible failure uh, all round. Um, there's been grandstanding, Twitter justice, and basically the, you know what should have been handled rigorously and properly was not done so at all. And it, it was almost like um, you know, trial by select committee and trial by social media, despite the fact that... You know, Azim Rafiq has himself suffered a lot from uh, uh, as a result of the things that happened to him. Well, that about brings an end to this week's episode of Sport and Luck. Well, twice this week. No Premier League chief executives or chairs coming out to have a chat with us. No, I think the it's all it's usual practice is that uh, before they leave the meeting, there's a sort of warning: don't speak to any of the media. And so it's uh, it's not the easiest thing, but it's. You do pick up the, the odd news line here and there. Anyway, great to catch up with you guys. Speak soon. Thanks a lot. And thank you, everyone, for listening, particularly the record-breaking numbers who listen to the pod on to the breaking news of Manchester City being charged in that disciplinary case opening. As ever, you can message us at Sport Locked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now, goodbye. Goodbye.